0: Welcome to Restored for Life with Pastor Ben Harris, the senior pastor at Restored Community Church, where God's perfect word restores imperfect people. Here's today's message from Pastor Ben. Greetings, my friends. I just want to pause before we continue in our uh, verse-by-verse study of this amazing book, The Gospel of John. I just want to thank you for coming to church. I just want to thank you for being so faithful so many are falling away now and, um, after what's taken place over these last years, and yet our church has grown by 300%, and, and it's just amazing what God is doing here, uh, so much so that uh, uh, we're in the process of getting ready, finally, to uh, break ground on our new building out front. Hang in there. Hang in there. You guys in the tent, uh, you guys are probably the most faithful. I don't know. You know, I, Hang in there. We've got heat out there and coffee, but uh, soon we'll all be together in one big happy family again, and uh, we're excited about what's coming down the road. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We'll be in chapter 8. We begin chapter 8 this week. Last week, we left off with Jesus' powerful and authoritative defense of his rightful title as Messiah, Many believed in him, Scripture tells us. Many still questioned his claims, and most of the religious elite rejected him out of hand. They wanted nothing to do with him. After a tense day of argument at the close of the Feast of Tabernacles, as we looked at last week, Scripture tells us they all went home. All, that is, except Jesus. Let's now begin. Chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is directly across from Jerusalem. They're about, uh, I would would guess they're about three-quarters of a mile apart, but there's a valley. It's called the Kidron Valley, and there's a creek that runs through there. And the Mount of Olives sits right across, so Jesus would have full view of the Temple Mount. Now, early in the morning, early means very early, probably before the first hour, which was 6 a.m., so this is probably dark outside. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. (laughs) I love how all this would have been fascinating just to watch, you know, the fly on the wall. Jesus hears what they're doing. He sees what they're doing. He knows their hearts. He knows what they're thinking in their minds. He knows what she's thinking. And he bends down and he starts to write in the dust something. John chapter 8 provides us with five contrasting truths that I found this last week. Here's contrast number one, the contrast between the law and grace. We're going to see the law and grace here on full display. The Pharisees are committed at this point to killing Jesus because, in their opinion, he had broken the Mosaic law when he healed the paralytic just a few chapters ago. He did it on the Sabbath. He did it on the Sabbath on purpose, and they decided at that moment he should die. So they sought to catch him in another way. They were attempting to, to set Jesus up by putting him in direct conflict with the law of Moses. They believed that they had finally cooked up the perfect catch-22. We're going to catch him, I'm sure they thought, and, and uh, they're excited about this. They're, about, they're all about letting this play out. I imagine on their faces, they had that little smirk. They were trying to hide a smile, like, what are you going to do with this? There's, there's no way out of this. This is the perfect plan. You see, if, if Jesus, um, he, couldn't, he couldn't authorize the stoning of this woman because it would have bypassed Rome's law of the right to a hearing... And if he submitted to Rome's law, Jesus would have been ignoring the law given by God to Moses. They thought they had at last cornered Jesus. This is perfect. He won't be able to get out of this one. The Pharisees believed Jesus would be teaching in the outer court. It was called the the Court of Women that morning, and he was. And so they arrived right in the middle of his teaching, and I believe this was by design. He has all the crowd looking at him. And they plan on, do, on hatching this right in front of everyone just to call him out. They were looking for that aha moment, and they had found it. But they would leave very disappointed. Do you find it strange that while it takes two to tango, as they say, only the woman is brought up on these charges? I do. Where's the man in all of this? Why wasn't he arrested and brought to Jesus as well? I was a cop for 20 years. I ask questions like that. I just got to have answers, but I, I can't find him in the, in the scripture here today. probably get to find out when we get to heaven. Was he part of a scheme to produce a needed guilty lamb? They needed somebody to blame. Was he part of this setup? I think it's very plausible since he's not there. Only she's in risk of losing her life. The man's not even there. He's not even going to be judged. He has no risk to any of this. If Jesus sided with the Pharisees and their version of the Moses law and convicted this woman, he would have lost sinners that he came to save. If he sided with the adulterer, he would have been breaking the law of Moses the Pharisees believed this was the perfect controversy with which to catch, uh, catch Jesus. But Jesus would not try the woman that morning. In fact, he would have nothing to do with that. No, he would place these self-righteous Pharisees on trial. He would flip the script and they couldn't even see it coming. No doubt Jesus' heart hurt for this woman set up for and cast into such an embarrassing moment. In front of so many onlookers, I can't imagine the shame she felt. In truth, we are all the woman caught in adultery because we have all sinned. We've all gone astray. We've all played the harlot away from God and played with the world and done worldly things. All have sinned and gone astray. No doubt his heart was angered by those who sought God through their words and their actions and And yet they were far from him because of their beliefs. The guilty accusing the guilty here. Those seeking punishment against one that needed grace. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them. Remember, he's kneeled down and he's writing in the dust. So they continue asking him over and over. He finally stands up and this is what he says. Jesus said, "He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first." What a great response. And again, after he said that, he stooped down and continued writing in the dust. Scripture doesn't tell us what Jesus was writing on the ground. It's another question that drives me crazy. I want to know it. But I imagine this, and this is only my imagination, that he was writing the names of those the Pharisees had sinned against. Perhaps the names of women they themselves had committed adultery within their hearts or otherwise. Perhaps the name of one they had knowingly and wrongly convicted under their law and had jailed or perhaps even killed, executed. Perhaps the name of a sin that weighed heavy on their minds while they professed innocence for themselves. An outrage against this woman who they had set up. The law required the injured party, the innocent victim, to throw the first stone. But that day there were none except for Jesus, and he came bearing grace, mercy, and compassion. Verse 9, Jesus makes that statement, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the stone at her first. Then those who heard it, these are the Pharisees around him, being convicted by their own conscience. This is why I think he probably was writing something like that in the sand, and they had watched what he was writing. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. Do you hear the stones falling from their hands? Man, I can't throw it after what he just wrote on the ground. The oldest to the youngest left. Isn't that interesting? The oldest are wise enough to know they've got a lot of sin, and they cannot throw that first stone against this woman. They went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Then Jesus had raised him, when Jesus had raised himself up again and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. John 3.16 is probably the most famous of all verses in the Bible. It's certainly my, fa- my uh, favorite one. But about 20 years I learned something and I got convicted by this. Never say John 3.16 by itself. you got to add 17. You just have to. Let me read it to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. That means uniquely born son. There's no one else that's been born like Jesus of a version. Of a virgin, um, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, here's 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, Jesus was the only one that could have thrown a rock that day, and he didn't. He gave grace, he offered mercy and compassion. Listen, my friends, no matter what we've done in our lives, those things that we wish we could go back and delete from our lives, and I have many that I'd like to go back and erase, those things that we should have done in the name of Christ and we didn't because, well, we just didn't want to take the time to do them. Maybe we felt embarrassed by doing them. His desire for you right now is the same one he has for this woman. It's full of compassion. He wants you to accept the gift of of the gospel, of forgiveness that we just remembered on the cross that Jesus purchased for each one of us. He wants us to turn towards him. That word repent means to change your mind or to change direction. It's a military phrase which means about face and go towards Christ. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. In today's story, that would have been death by stoning. He gave her mercy. And grace is getting what we don't deserve. Again, in today's story, he gave her a fresh start and a new beginning for this woman. He didn't condemn her. My friends, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. God desires a fresh start and a new beginning for everyone that will listen, that will do that about face. Jesus said, repent. The kingdom of God is near. Repent, turn around, come to me. We must not read this passage and think that Jesus is easy on sin or ignores Moses' law that was given by God, his father. Not too long after this occurrence, Her sin, along with our sin, and everyone that ever lived, for it to be forgiven, Jesus would have to shed his blood on the cross. His blood covered all of our sin. He wasn't light on sin. Trust me on that one. If you've ever seen uh, the, the remake of some of the movies of his crucifixion, it is brutal. You can't accuse him of being light on sin. By the way, this is is unique to Christianity. The creator providing his son to the creation in an act of forgiveness. There's no other religion like that. All the other ones say, do this, be this, confess this, and then we'll talk about your salvation. But God says, no, I've already done that. and I'm offering you the free gift. You see, both grace and the law are are a requirement of salvation. So many people don't want to talk about the law. They say, no, no, I don't don't like the law. I don't even want to talk about it. I want to pretend it's not there. Uh, Let's just talk about grace. But for grace to exist, for, for grace to work, for salvation to happen, you have to have both. You have to have the law and you have to have grace. You have to have the law because without the law, we don't know we're guilty, If there's no law out there, you can do whatever you feel is right. So God sent the law through Moses, and the law became a mirror to us. And when we look into the mirror, we go, oh, wow, look at that. There's no way I can do, I can be good enough to please God. There's just no way. I can't earn this. The law always was a mirror that showed us our guilt. And what do we do with that? Well there's no way out. We're guilty now. Someone has to pay for our crime. Someone had to pay for our sin because God is a righteous judge. He he has to hold somebody accountable or he's not righteous and he's not good. No judge would, would sweep sin under the carpet and pretend it's not there. Our God would not do that. For salvation to happen, the law and grace need both be in effect. There is power which begets reverence after this happens. Um, We fear God as followers of Christ, and we have a respect for the God that that did this for us, that had this plan of salvation for us. In Psalm 130, the author reveals the benefit of God's grace to us. Listen to his, his cry. He says, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. This is a man who is crying to God to forgive him. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. as says, I pray to you, God, please listen to me. If you, Lord, should mark, or that word also means remember. If you, Lord, should remember my iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? Who could stand before you? Who could ever walk into your holy courts? Not me, Lord, not me. I need you to hear me, and I need your forgiveness. Verse 4 continues. It says, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And that word feared means revered as one who is holy and righteous. And this fear that we, that is generated when we come to Christ should cause us to want to live our lives as a thank you note to him for what he's done for us. He did what we could not do. He gave us what we could not have ourselves. We're looking at five contrasting truths. Contrast number one, the contrast between the law and grace. And contrast number two, the contrast between light and darkness. So we've seen the law and grace here on display with this woman. Now he changes the subject. Jesus is going to continue teaching to the crowd that was there. Then Jesus spoke to them again. Now it's likely that These Pharisees, you remember, they walk away one by one. They drop their rocks, and they're gone. They can't throw rocks at this woman. They disappear. But they're on the Temple Mount, and there's Pharisees and teachers and scribes and Sadducees. They're all over the place on that Temple Mount. It's likely more come to hear Jesus teach. And then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am, remember that means in Hebrew, the holy God. He's... he's, He's saying, I am the preexistent God when he says, I am. That would have shocked all of them. He was claiming to be God. Then Jesus spoke to them again and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You may remember that our scripture stated that when Jesus began to teach this day, it was early in the morning. Remember that? I tried to make a note of that, that it's, it's before the sun rose in Hebrew that uh, very early describes before dawn. And it's likely that when Jesus gets to this point of his teaching, that the sun is just rising over the Mount of Olives when he says, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will walk in the light. To follow Jesus means to believe in him, to increasingly become more and more like him. And the result of that is that our lives will begin to reflect his illumination. It's not that we generate the light, but it is he is the light. And that as he he lives in us, his spirit lives in us, as we walk into the world, we should naturally give off light. People should look at us and go, what is, you're different. You deal with things differently. You see life differently. You see um, problems different than I do. When you have something that should cause great suffering, you just live it out differently. You have this hope in you. They should want to know what's inside of you and why you're different. Verse 13, The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Uh, Jewish law did allow, did, or did not allow, for a man to give witness solely based upon himself. He had to have the testimony of two or three others for it to be considered valid. It's interesting to note here that the word witness, just in this chapter, is used seven times. Jesus talks about the witness. Jesus fulfilled the requirement of two witnesses, or three even, because his father gave testimony of him from the beginning of time. Light gives off a self-evidence testimony as to its presence and existence. The only people who cannot see the light are those that are walking in spiritual blindness, and these Pharisees are doing that. And it's a willful walk because as we've read and we'll read again, others in the crowd, many others, come to believe in Jesus. They saw the truth. The Pharisees don't want to see it. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am from the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one, Jesus says, who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Why should the Pharisees have known who Jesus is? Well, because the prophets had written about him for a thousand years before this, in great detail, in fact, throughout the Scriptures, and the prophets' words eventually led many people to believe in him, like Nicodemus, who said, No one can do the things that you do unless he comes from the Father. He was putting two and two together. Nicodemus is going, Wait a minute. I think you are the Messiah. No one could do all these miracles that you're doing. The Pharisees wouldn't see this. They were blinded, and that was on purpose. The meta-message of the Bible is that man's sin and our inability to reconcile ourselves from that sin and God's grace brought down to us through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't read it objectively any differently and come up with a different message It's mankind's willful separation from God and it's God's willful plan to restore mankind back to himself. That is the message of the Bible, the meta-message of the Bible. And you find it in all 66 books. There is a red line that runs all the way through 66 books and that line represents Christ and the blood that he shed. We're looking at five contrasting truths Contrast one is the contrast between law and grace. Then we saw the contrast between light and darkness. And now Jesus is going to give us the contrast between life and death. We've already heard Jesus talk about going away to a place of which the Pharisees and other unbelievers would not be able to find him. He repeats himself again here. Verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. N-O-T-W, ever seen the N-O-T-W Um, stuff on clothing and not of this world Jesus said it first it's a quote from this uh, passage he said I'm not of this world therefore verse 24 therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins for if you do not believe that I am he the Messiah God's son you will die in your sins Restored for Life is a radio ministry brought to you by Restored Community Church. Visit restoredcommunitychurch.org to learn more about Pastor Ben Harris and for service times. Join Pastor Ben next time as we set out on a journey to discover the authentic life as Christ followers through obedience to his word.